Welcome to Geared for Growth. This week we've got a great interview with Philippe Brack, who is the CEO of Multifocus Properties and Finance. He's a published author and investment property guru, and we have a chat to him about his background and how he got started in property, some tips from his books about making money in any market, and his tips for succeeding as a serial property investor. It's a great interview and we hope you enjoy it. Here's Philippe. Philippe Brack, thanks for joining us on Geared for Growth. Uh, my pleasure. I'm really excited with this interview. I've been, been looking forward to, to getting you on for a while. Can you kick us off with letting us know who you are and, and what you do, what you specialize in, Philippe? Um, okay, my name is Philippe Brack from uh, Multifocus Properties and Finance, and we specialize in helping people really create wealth um, using property as a tool. Um, our business covers uh, going through strategy, trying to understand what uh, people's finances are, build up a strategy with them about where they're going, what they can do, in the, and obviously in the context of their financial situation, um, then organize the financial structure, and then finally source properties um, and and repeat the process time and time again, helping helping them build um, a portfolio. Awesome, and you're a very well-known name in the industry, so I'm looking forward to, to diving into the nuts and bolts of that. Just to give us a bit more of, a, of an insight into you, I want to know about the, uh, the posters on the bedroom wall as a youngster. <laughs> well, I used to be a big fan of um, spaghetti westerns. Um, right. Yeah, the, the, the old um, uh, Sergio Leone films, and, uh, and especially I love the music of um, Ennio Morricone. Mm -hmm. uh, but on the wall, obviously, uh, the posters you could find would be um, Clint Eastwood and um, all these, you know, the posters of the, these wonderful films like Once Upon a Time in the West, Once Upon a Time a Revolution, um, The Good, The Bad and The Ugly, etc., etc. So I had them all on, on my wall. And how removed was the sort of life of, of the stylized Clint Eastwoods to, to Philippe growing up? <laughs> um, it was... Um was an interesting thing is that um, as soon as you grow up, obviously you you grow out of these. But um, I still got fond memories of me as a kid um, jumping on the bed and playing with my plastic gun. <laughs> yeah, uh, the biggest um, surprise for me when I grew up was actually started traveling overseas and then realizing that all these actors were actually not French and they didn't speak French right. and they had really really funny accents. Um, so um, that that was a big surprise for me, and that sort of helped me grow up to that you know things are not always what they they're supposed to be. Yeah, and I can imagine that hearing Clint Eastwood's uh, accent in English would have been very far removed from the the, the French uh, dubbing that you were listening to. Yeah, absolutely, and and it's also at that point that I realized that. Uh, in in the French version, um, the lips don't actually work together very well. Um, <laughs> but you don't you don't realize it until you actually see the original version. And it was it makes you think that this is interesting how conditioned you can be yeah. um, in in your education. <laughs> that would have been a real culture shock for you. So yeah. can can you let us know how you got started in in property and what was your first investment? Sure. Um, the, the story really started when um, we decided to settle down in Australia, um, obviously being originally French. Um, it was um, a, a question of choice and we can maybe talk a bit about it later. But um, when we first um, settled down in Australia, um, I um, 
I was working for a big hotel group and, and I was one of their senior executives in finance. And um, I just looked around and say, okay, now we're settling down, what do we do with our money? And um, uh, came across that notion of negative gearing, which I've never heard of because it's something that's very specific to Australia. Yep. I think they, there's, there's, there are provisions in, uh, in the Tax Act in Japan for, for negative gearing and, and I think as well in Canada, but that, that's, that's about it. You, you don't find that in Europe. So um, once I, I got to understand how it worked and um, I was just um, I was starting to get hooked on property because I thought it was a great way to diversify from shares. And that's how I got into property. And eventually when I had my midlife crisis, you know, where you check <laughs> in your job, start your new business, buy the biggest car you can think of, um, that, that was sort of normal for me to slide. It was almost automatic to slide into there because I, I talked to my colleagues and they all, you know, at work and they all wanted to invest in property and I, and I gave them tips, etc, etc. And I realized there was a big market there yes. for, for senior execs that are time poor and, and want to sort of um, create wealth, um, top up superannuation, you know, whatever their motivation is, uh, but, but certainly invest their money into something that's different from, from the share market. It's a fairly common story. People become successful at something, or they have they have a win at something, and then their friends sort of say, "Can you teach me how to do it?" So, you, you've been yeah. around since two thousand and six. Was that really what spawned Multifocus? Yes, indeed. Um, I it was just after I left um, um, when I left this hotel group. Um, I started the business straight away, and it was just um, it just took off straight away because there was so much demand, it was a niche market. The other thing is that because I was in corporate finance, anything to do with taxation, um, accounting, legal, although I'm not a, a lawyer, uh, but I, I have enough knowledge to understand how all these things work in Australia. So when I went into my own business, um, it, it was sort of, I can, I can talk about things knowing that they will work in, in, in legal terms, in taxation works and in accounting terms. Yep. So it's, um, it's a big plus in this business, not many people can do it. Um, and, um, and it's been very successful for me. Yeah, awesome. And we certainly want to dive into to some of the, uh, the strategies that you employ to help your clients. Just taking a, a bit of a, a back pedal, you, I can't help but notice that you've got a, a name that sounds way cooler than mine. Um, t <laughs> tell us about, uh, well, firstly, how to pronounce the bloody thing, because I, uh, I tried before and I think I, I failed and insulted you. Um, where, whereabouts did you grow up and, and, and sort of when did you make the move over to Australia? Okay, I was um, I was born and bred in Strasbourg, which is on the very east of France. It's on the it's on the Rhine River, but it's on the French side of the Rhine River. Right. A lot of people, when I mention Strasbourg, they confuse it with Salzburg, which is in Austria. Right. But um, um, Strasbourg is is definitely French, and it's on 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 the French side of the Rhine. On the other side of the Rhine, you've got Germany. And uh, I, I remember um, as a kid uh, with my dad, we used to drive across the bridge uh, of the Rhine River to, to actually get petrol for the car because petrol was cheaper in, in Germany. <laughs> so, right. so it's, uh, you know, how many people can say, oh, I need my passport to go and get petrol. Yeah. Uh, so it was quite good. So we used to get there, get the petrol, drive back. And, and we sort of, um, you know, a, a nice little uh, drive uh, for, for me and my dad. 
I think one of the, the, the things that strikes you the most going to Europe is you see advertisements for Ryanair. You could basically fly to any of 20 countries for, for pocket change. That must have been a, a, a real sort of uh, interesting childhood. And, and growing up in Australia, to get your passport and going somewhere, you, you're in for a long haul. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, all the distances are very, very different. So, um, so my the name is 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 actually Germanic. It's uh, B R A C H. So, if you want to pronounce it in the local dialect, is it's Brach. But um, it's a bit of a mouthful for anybody in the Anglo-Saxon world. So we just um, we just call it Brach, and uh, that makes it much easier for everyone to pronounce. Yeah, right. Uh, I, yeah. I could try and say uh, "ce n'est pas possible pour moi." Um, I don't think it's possible for me. I'm going to leave that uh, right alone. I've already uh, probably embarrassed myself. Now, Philippe, getting uh, sort of back to your professional career, you mentioned you've got a career in in finance with some rudimentary stalking of of your background. I I can see that you've worked in big businesses, um, places like Accor and that sort of thing. Can can you tell us about um, your experience in the the corporate world? Sure. Um, it, It all started actually still when I was at home in Strasbourg where my dad kept saying you know if you want to be anybody in this world you need to speak English and um, and my mom kept saying yes you need English everybody needs to speak two languages English for business and French for love so I sort of remember all that and um, as soon as I finished my studies I just packed up um, my um, old Renault 10 put my suitcase in there and then just drove off to London so that's about 800k from Strasbourg. Mm-hmm. So it's um, in, you know, you mentioned um, the distances in Australia. For Australia, it's not a big deal. But um, in Europe, that was a massive expedition. Yeah. So um, got to London and never went back. Um, I've, I've never worked in France. And uh, I just uh, kept on going from, from London. So I found... Um, started in that um, working for, for Accor. Uh, it wasn't called Accor at the time. It was before Accor was invented. It was called Novotel. Right. Um, and um, we had three hotels in the UK. And they decided that they would want to, they, you know, Paris decided they wanted to expand in the UK. So um, we started a, a little head office there. And, and I was running all the, all the accounts there. And um, um, I've, from three hotels, I think today they've got something like 300. Yeah, well. And then in the early 90s, there was someone who um, from Paris decided that Asia uh, would be the future for for any um, hotel group. And then so um, they sent me to Bangkok and I stayed there for a few years, um, helping to set up the the head office and and running the books there. Um, Also, we started buying and going into joint venture in Asian countries. So that was a great time. And um, eventually we... We ended up buying um, a hotel group in, in Australia. Uh, it was listed on the stock exchange, so um, uh, we moved the whole Asia Pacific um, head office to to Sydney, yep. and where I spent a few years. And then we decided to expand into Japan, so we took over a group of hotels in Japan. So I went there for a few years, and then uh, I had um, a, a really um, lucky break is that um, I, I called my boss um, and said that you know after 25 years as an expat I wanted to settle down somewhere and he said yeah no problem um, just um, name the place we'll organize the visas which which wow. is, is very generous yeah yeah 
So I made a big song and dance with my wife. We, we sat in our apartment in Tokyo and with a glass of wine and uh, and one of these globes, you know, um, of the earth. <laughs> wow. And so we made a big song and dance. But uh, to be honest, I mean, the reality is that within two minutes, we decided we wanted to go back to Australia. Yeah. Wow. So um, that, that's how we... So, um, and then I did another 10 years with Accor in, in Australia and then um, got on to setting up my own business. And yeah, and, and it was really great. I mean, Accor is a fantastic company. I've got nothing you know, um, bad to say about these people. They're just, um, they're just great. And um, it was just the fact that I just wanted to do something different with my life. Um, and, and that pushed me to, to actually set up my own business. Let's uh, let's dive into that one if we can. You, so you you started back in in two thousand and six. I'm interested in in what the the market was like there, which I think ties pretty well into into to your book as well um, about creating wealth in in any market, which is sort of pertinent to the moment with you know Sydney coming off the boil and and that sort of thing. Can you can you give us an insight uh, into what the market was like when you started and 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 an insight into what readers could expect in that book? Okay. Um, first of all, when I started investing was prior to that because I was still working for a course. So it was in the early 2000 I started investing, yep. uh, and the market was just massively buoyant. Um, uh, properties in pretty much every market in Australia were just going gangbusters. It was one of these one of the big booms, and Sydney was going through that as well. And and actually, the the increase in the Sydney market at the time was probably. The, the curve or the upward curve of, of property prices at the time was steeper than what we've just experienced in Sydney recently. Right. Um, but by the time I started my business in 2006, things started to cool. They were not cooling down massively, but they were just sort of settling down a little bit. Uh, and then obviously in 2008, we started having the, the GFC. But um, what I realized in my very early in my, in my uh, property career is that they, they are, there's not one market in Australia, there are thousands of markets. Yep. And, and the, the key to it, and even in today's market, the key to it is to actually find the, the markets that are growing at a, any given point in time. Um, uh, this, for instance, if you look at the Cairns market, the Cairns market was doing really, really, really well in the early 2000, and when it got to 2006, um, it started to slow down, and when the GFC hit, we had the, you know, uh, the, the Cairns market just just crashed, and it hasn't really recovered since. But um, and that's very different. Nobody talks about how weak the Cairns market is, while everybody talks about how strong the Sydney market is. Yep. But if you, if you think about it, at some point in time, Cairns will pick up again. They're saying there's some green shoots there, etc. So what I want to say is that there's there's thousands of markets. Every location is different and goes through a cycle of um, growth, you know, stability, correction, then growth again, etc., etc. And this cycle can go over 10, 15 years sometimes. Yep. With property investors that are sort of investing as a long-term play, they might be holding the property for, for 10 or 20 years for a couple mm -hmm. of cycles. Is mm -hmm. it still important to invest counter-cyclically? I'm guessing if, if you're getting in to a place with green shoots and some good fundamentals, you, you sort of want some, some front-loaded uh, capital growth to sort of withdraw equity and, and go again. Is that sort of part of your strategy? Um, it is. Um, what is very, very tricky is to find out where the market in a particular location, where the market is, um, 
in, in relation to, to that cycle. So picking the bottom of the cycle, which is ideally what you want to do, is, is really, really hard. And sometimes some markets stay at the bottom for, for quite a long time. Yeah. Um, but um, it, it's, you know, when it starts picking up, this is where you want to be. But it's extraordinarily hard to pick. To pick. So ideally what you're looking for is, is getting to a market where you can see that it's been sort of turning around and, and going up for a little while. That's your best bet. So you're not, you're sort of on the, on the, the upward curve. You're not, you're not picking it up at the bottom, but yep. say a quarter up the, um, the upward curve. And I think that's, that's probably the safest way to do it is that when you've got some kind of track record of, um, of the market picking up and, and going up yep. because the real estate market, as you know, is not, is not massively volatile like shares can be. Yes. Uh, it's, it's a bit like a, a big bumbling thing going along. So once you've got a trend going, um, you know, it just doesn't stop and, and reverse. So it's, it's a way of, you know, looking, watching these markets where, where they're about to take off or, or they've just started to take off and then just piggyback on that. Awesome. Yeah, that's a really interesting insight there, Philippe. I want to talk about um, your your book, and it mentions the the four stages of success, sort of being planning, accumulation, transition, and, and drawdown. I, I do yeah. think investors focus so much more on the accumulation side of things. Is that something that you agree with? And and can you talk us through the those four stages? Yeah, for sure. Um, the the first thing, uh, as you mentioned, the the planning phase is is actually the phase where you um, get yourself educated. You 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 have to understand what you're doing. Um, property is a numbers game in my mind. So what you need to do, the first thing you need to do is to get your head around how it works, what the numbers are telling you, um, and and that will dictate in in turn where you should be looking for properties. But the the first thing is to understand what are the mechanics of um, how do you create wealth on paper, if you want. Um, uh, by investing in property and so you need to understand how you're going to structure your finances you need to understand a bit of how the tax system works you need to understand what you can well, obviously what you can claim what you cannot claim but also how uh, an investment property performance works so what's your profit and loss account on your property what is your cash flow and then once you understand the concept and it's clear in your head then you can start saying, okay, now I get it. I know where I'm going. Um, I've got my strategy going forward. Um, and then you start the accumulation phase. So in the accumulation phase is obviously um, the exciting part because this is where you go and find properties. This yes. is where you, you do your research. This is etc. etc. Knowing what you want the numbers, that you want that property to deliver in terms of numbers. And, and that's, that's the, um, the exciting part of it. So that's why everybody concentrates on that. And once you've got to the number of properties you want or, or you can do, because a lot of property, a lot of people come to me and say, oh, I, I want to buy, I want to have a portfolio of 10 properties. And I said, yeah, that's fine, but you can only afford two looking at your income. Yeah. So you have to sort of, uh, and that's part of the planning phase, is to say, listen, your dream is to have 10, today you can do two. So let's look at what we can do now to get you two properties. And then the next step is, how do we get you to be able to afford more properties? And then we look at the strategy going forward in terms of either increasing income or, or 
trying you know, or organizing savings or, or piggybacking on existing properties to extract equity. Yep. So it's um it's a question and so once you've done the you have gone through the accumulation and and you've um you've got the properties you want four five whatever the number is. Then you go into um, the easiest phase of them all is the transition phase where you pretty much do nothing. Right. Because during the accumulation phase, hopefully what you do is you extract equity from one property you bought a couple of years before, then use that to put as a deposit for the next one. So every time you create equity in your property, you actually extract it to get to the next one. So if you add all your portfolio together, at the beginning you don't really have much equity in there because every time you got some you use it to get to the next one yes. so during the transition phase what you do is you stop buying and you just say, sit there and you and you wait for time to work its magic and and therefore you will see your properties grow in value your debt obviously will not grow or decrease depending on, on what you do with your your repayments um, and then that creates a gap, which is the equity, which is what um, what you want um, uh, um, when you retire. And what the actual and value then, is, I guess. Yeah, so it's a diff you know the, the market goes up in value, hopefully, and then um, your debt stays the same. The difference is your equity, and that's that's what um, you know a lot of people. Um, get comfort about you know having little spreadsheets and looking at the properties growing and the debt staying there and calculated how much equity they, they have so they can see that if tomorrow they sell everything this is how much they can actually cash in yep. and that's um, it's just um, also a mindset because a lot of people see the cash going out to sustain the property if, if it's um, cash flow negative for instance but they don't see the equity or, or the, the capital gains until they actually sell the property. Yeah. So, so that's all part of the the planning phase to get these things, these concepts across to people. Um, once you finish with the transition phase, which could be very long, could be ten years, fifteen years, uh, you go into the what I call the the drawdown phase, which is okay. Now I've got all this equity. Uh, how how do I actually cash cash this in? And um, this is where you know you've got various options. Um, option number one, you just sell the entire portfolio, um, cash in the equity, and then accept that you have to pay capital gains tax on your on your sale. Put that in a savings account and and just leave off that. That that's option one. Option two, if you've um, if during the transition phase you've actually diligently started to repay your debt, which is which is not a bad thing to do. Yeah. Um, you might end up at the end when you retire in a in a massively cash flow income stream that means that you might not have to sell any of the properties and just keep going. But for most people, the the third option, which is a hybrid between the other two, is you you sell some of your properties to to cash in some of the money to do whatever you need to do and just keep and and repay the debt on the others and then in such a way that you create an income stream that is acceptable to you and that in that way you get an income stream and you also still have some properties that will will be exposed to capital growth. Yeah, awesome. So yeah, I guess you, you build that portfolio, you might have to cut it in half to, to pay off the debt, but you've still got the yep. income stream and, and the potential capital growth on, on that as well. 
Where, I'm, I'm, you mentioned the, the people sort of coming to you and saying, you know, I, my goal is to own 10 properties. This is something that I've, I've heard before. 10 seems to be a really magic number or is the, the sort of the, 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 the holy grail of properties. And, you know, you dig a little bit deeper and you say, well, is, is that 10 $200,000 properties or would it, be, would it be better to have five $2 million properties? And, and then it all sort of seems to unravel. Where, where does that 10 figure come from, do you think? Uh, it's. Um, I think it's um, a number people just have in their heads because they really don't understand how it works. Mm -hmm. So when when someone comes to me and say I want to grow and have at least ten properties, I know these people have got. Um, you know, they need a bit of education. Um, it's in, especially in today's market. It's it's really hard to get to ten properties for anyone. Yeah. Um, the other thing is that. You read in some of the magazines or on online, etc., about all these these wonderful people who've you know had a thirty-five thousand dollar a year job and managed to create a property portfolio of 10, 15, 20 properties, and you just want to emulate that, saying, "Oh, that sounds easy. I can I can buy ten properties and then just retire." Yeah, and I'm on uh, forty thousand a year, so it'll be even easier for me. <laughs> That's right, and uh, so there's obviously something wrong into these stories because you you don't you don't get the whole thing and the ins and outs because it's obviously very clear that on thirty five thousand you can't build yourself um, a massive property portfolio and live of it. Yeah. Um, the the other day there was a guy who said he had twenty eight properties, but if you look at the level of debt he had on these properties and and he says oh and he says he goes on holidays every year he spends 50 grand on every holiday he goes to and he goes for three weeks at a time and and all that funded by his properties but if you look at the level of debt the guy's got there's no way that he's got enough cash flow to do that stuff and also how do you get to 28 properties it's just um even in the good old days when when finance was easier would have been a big task he would earn quite a few million to get there. Yeah. Um, so uh, there's no magic to investing in property. It's a factor. You've got things you can't go around, and you can't go around the banks, right? You need the banks to, yes. to help you with your with with leverage. So you need to obey by the bank's rules. And the banks the banks look at two things when you're buying a property. They're looking at your capacity to repay a loan, and they're looking and which is linked to your income, and they're looking at. Um, where is the deposit coming from? So you need these two, and, and they're all independent of each other in a way. Um, so you need a green tick on both of them. So you could have a million dollars sitting in a bank. If you don't have a borrow, enough borrowing capacity, the bank will not lend you any money. Yep. And conversely, you could have a $3 million borrowing capacity. If you don't have any deposit, you won't get a loan either. Yes. So it's a question of balancing these two, and there's always one of these two is going to be your weak point. Um, and but. And that's what we're trying to educate people, saying, okay, this is this is the boundary of what you can do with your income today. This is the number of properties you can buy at an average of, say, four hundred or five hundred thousand dollars. And with the deposit you've got, you can only do one. So although you can technically borrow for free, you can only do one because you don't have enough deposit. So we work on the deposit. Yeah. So there's there's a lot of things coming in in into. Um, this this planning and and getting these these portfolio of the ground and and people sometimes dream a little bit yeah. about what they can do. 
for for all of these sort of uh, lofty desires for for property investors, on on average, people aren't getting anywhere near close to their expectations. You you, you mentioned uh, about people having inadequate superannuation. Is that a common problem and a reason why people come to you, or is that just a nasty surprise that people realise later on in life? Um. No, it's people realize early enough that there is a problem with superannuation. You know, when you typically read, depending where you read, who you read, um, you need between one and two million in super to have a comfortable life, as they call it, yeah. um, which is which is not not that much. Um, people get worried very very easily because. Most of the people we actually see, even though people on a good salary, if you look and you know they've got maybe three, four hundred thousand in their super, they're in their mid forties, so they they could get to the magic million, um, you know, before they retire. But the magic million is no longer magic in the sense that life expectancy has increased so much yes. that um, if you have, um, for instance, if you have a million dollars in super and you want to draw 75,000 a year out of it, um, and and this fund grows at um, an average of, say, 6%, in 20 years, you've run out of money. Right. Okay, so that, that's the type of equation. And, you know, if you, if, if you retire at age 60, that means at age 80, you've got no money left. Yeah, and I um, guess the stats are telling us that, you know, people born from 2000 onwards are likely to live to 100 so there's a there's a big gap yeah yeah so i saw yesterday actually um in the fin review that um there's a researcher saying the the first person who is going to live to 150 is already born today wow yeah. <laughs> that's an interesting so I'm not one sure it's, i think someone is being maybe a bit optimistic but um, the trend is definitely there if um uh, you know the the life expectancy from the, the 1960 to now has gone up by at least uh, 10 to 12 years. You know, 10, 10, 10 for females, 12 for men. Uh, sort of catching up a little bit now. Um, but but you are in this situation where yeah, a million is not enough. You know, super. So you you should be shooting for the double that. Yeah. Um, or, or the government's going to make you work until you're 75 before you're allowed to retire. So that that could be something as well. That's true, um, and it's it's a big problem these days because you know um, in the olden days you you retired at sixty and you were dead at seventy, so um, there wasn't so much of a problem. But nowadays you've got an entire life again. Exactly. Now, yeah. Philippe, I think it's time we talk about property because I can yep. hear I can hear the listeners getting itchy. We want to know about the hot spots and where you're buying <laughs> and, and what sort of thing. So so typically what sort of properties are you sourcing for your clients? Are you a house or a unit man, a new or an old? Are you regional, are you capital cities? I'm guessing that that sort of depends on, on a lot of things, but uh, can you give us a bit of an insight into, into some of your sort of predilections for property? Sure, okay. First of all, what type of property is good today? Um, if I'm looking at optimizing um, someone building up a portfolio, you you want capital growth, but you also want a cash flow that is not crippling you. You know the old thing saying you've got capital growth, therefore the property is going to be the yield is going to be very low. Um, that doesn't work when you when you when you want to build you know a portfolio of four or five properties, um, and they're each costing you you know. 
$150 a week, um, if you've got one property, that's fine, you can survive. But if you've got five properties costing $150 a week, you're, you're going to start struggling very, very quickly. Yes. So um, I don't have a problem, for instance, uh, and I didn't have a problem during the, the heyday of, of Sydney in terms of capital growth, uh, nobody could. But if you're buying a, a one bedroom unit in Lane Cove for $800,000, but your rent is about 530 or something, um, your your cash flow after taxation is going to be quite abysmal. Yes. And if you've got four or five of these, you're going to suffer greatly. So the, the trick is to get a property that grows in capital, but also where the cash flow is reasonable. I'm not saying it should be, you know, $50 cash flow positive a week, but um, it needs to be in the context of a, of a person's financial situation, it needs to be reasonable and and stress free. Yeah. Right. So going from that, um, how do I improve my cash flow? You, the best way to improve your cash flow, um, uh, apart from yield on the rent, is is depreciation. Um, and depreciation is 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 a big big contributor to to your cash flow. Yes. So um, I'm looking at. Uh, properties that would be new in you know, prior to May 2017 I would have said new or near new yes. but now near new is not good enough anymore because in May 2017 uh, Scott Morrison removed the ability for, for for investors to claim plant and equipment on second-hand properties exactly. and that could be a property as new as a week old uh, certainly you can't you can't claim depreciation on all these and for a newish property, that's equivalent of losing half your depreciation. Yes. Yeah, that, okay. and that's certainly the, the data that, that we've been looking at is, is supporting that, that you know, in the first year of claim where you're getting a lot of those plant and equipment asset deductions, it's, it's yeah. slicing it in half, which makes a big difference to the cash flow. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm in a situation where I had to scrap near new and I'm, I'm now at new. Now, the next thing that's, okay, so new what? New houses, new apartments. Um, um, before I go into that, um, the difference between um, a four, let's, let's call it, uh, take an example, a $450,000 property. It's brand new, you borrow 80%, um, you're on 39% taxes, so you're, you're in sort of um, uh, between eighty-seven dollars and $180,000 income. Um, your cash flow is probably, oh, say, $20, $25 cash flow positive per week. Yep. If you buy a same property, that's $450,000, and, and I'm going completely to the other end, saying it's a 1960s apartment or whatever, yep. and you've got zero depreciation because everything is so old. I know there's always a little bit of depreciation, but just, just to, to illustrate my point, yep. and you've got zero depreciation, that property would cost you uh, um, it's for, it's probably four and a half thousand yeah, four, four and a half thousand a year. So it would be close to sixty, seventy dollars a week yep. negative yep. in cash flow. So a depreciation makes so much difference to to your cash flow. And so what you want is concentrate on getting capital growth properties, but you want to make sure that your cash flow is not killing you. So it comes into that. So now we're talking about houses versus units. Um, this, there's a different problem that comes up here is that if you want a brand new unit, very often, um, most of the time, 
99% of the time it will be an off-the-plan unit. Yep. Um, because uh, obviously it's very rare that um, um, a developer will actually build an entire block of apartments and, and then decide to sell them then. They, they will always sell them off the plan so they can get the finance from the bank. Yes. Now, this is where the issue comes, is that banks have been very, very erratic in the last few years in terms of uh, lending policies. Prior to that, it was very, very stable. You could actually make really good decisions years in advance. Now, I get, I get emails every day of banks changing policies. And I can't today, hand on my heart, sell a, an apartment to someone off the plan and say, don't worry, in two years time, we'll be able to get your finance because I don't know what the rules are going to be because they keep changing on a daily basis. Yeah, exactly. And a big a big example of that is all these um, foreign people, especially Chinese, coming and buying all these apartments and then suddenly the banks decide to change their policy and they're not lending to foreigners anymore and all these people who, who bought up the plan are stuck. Yes. Um, in, in terms of Australians living in Australia, um, you got um, the thing where banks would come up and say, oh, we've updated the list of postcodes where we're not lending anymore. And, and invariably, it's in, in apartment areas. So you, even though I don't have a problem with apartment per se, um, I, I think I, I don't want to put my clients in a situation where I can't get them some finance at the end of the process because the banks have changed their policy and you just can't get finance anymore. Yeah, that can so, be a very tricky position so, to be in when you know, you've got an approaching settlement and a bank has pulled the rug from underneath you. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So that leaves me with houses. And where do you get a brand new house that's never been occupied before? Pretty much you are the same, same issue as with apartments. It's fairly rare that the builder would actually buy a piece of land, put a house on it and then sell it. And then there's an argument to say, are you the first owner or not? Um, I'm not sure. But um, the way to go around that, and which is what we're doing is to say, well, let's go for house and land packages yep. because it's um, it provides exactly what we want, maximum depreciation. And there's there's also an added bonus is that you, your stamp duty is cut down considerably um, because in a house and land package um, scenario, you buy the land first, then you build a house. When you buy the land, you only pay stamp duty on the land. Uh, then you build a house on your land so you don't pay stamp duty on the house. And that can save you, you know, 15000 a year. Yeah, wow. So, um, to me, in today's market, it's my product of choice because of the taxation behind it um, and, 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 and because of the uncertainty in, in the financing market for, for apartments. So that's in terms of product. And now in terms of locations, um, <laughs> there, 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 listen, there are many, many markets. And the, the thing that is interesting with these markets is that they tend to go for, to be in the right, the sweet spot is, is open for about, say, a year, and then you have to move on. Um, I, I'll give you an example. Um, about two years ago, we were heavily marketing um, um, properties in, in the Newcastle area. Yep. Um, and they were, they were all, and I bought one myself there, uh, actually, and they were all between five hundred and five hundred and fifty thousand dollars uh, towards the end. Um, 
but the initial guys who came in where the properties were about five hundred thousand um, dollars so that was less than two years ago and now I've got a couple of clients because they had changed in circumstances had to sell the properties in in these areas in in Newcastle and, and they were selling for six hundred and thirty Wow so so that that's great because that's in the equity you need to get to the next property um, so the, the trick is to find these areas so recently I've been very very interested in areas um, that are close to capital cities that benefit from the ripple effect of the economy of a capital city so Melbourne Sydney um, to a certain extent Brisbane um, and, and these areas uh, were along the, the central coast was um, was our, a great focus of ours uh, last year. But same thing, you know, um, properties that were selling for four bedroom house on 400 square meter block that were selling at 440, sorry, 540, 550 are now way over 620, 630,000. So uh, how much growth is left? Um, I'm sure there is uh, some. Uh, it's just um, becoming less attractive than what it was, you know, um, 18 months ago. So it's really important to, to time that, that cycle, I guess. But I, 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 that does sort of lead fairly well into another question, which I guess um, is, is, is something you discuss in your book about making money in, in any market. So let, let's say we're, 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 we're looking at a market or, or an area that we've decided to, to invest that, that's sort of flat. How, how, are we, mm -hmm. how are we gaining equity in a, in a market that's not going anywhere? Uh, well, the short answer is you don't. Right. <laughs> okay. As, as I mentioned, I mean, you you know, like everybody says, oh, the Sydney market is flat. But, you know, I mentioned the Central Coast market, the Wollongong market is also good. Um, so you've got the areas that still benefit from that. So if the market is flat in Sydney, you go somewhere else. Right. If the flat is, you know, the, the market in Melbourne is still going a little bit, but it's getting really up there. So you go, you go a bit further out. Um, you know, you go to the satellites of the satellite cities around Melbourne. Um, but I think that in, in today's market, you need to stick um, close to capital cities. Uh, going too, too far out in the regions, um, to me, is, um, is an issue. Everybody's, um, you know, I, people are talking about um, Orange, Bathurst, uh, and as much as, as I like to drive there, I, I'm not sure I want to invest my money into these markets. Um, but, you know, staying on the eastern seaboard, I've got no issues with the free capital cities there. I guess in, case in, in point with those satellite cities, we've we've seen investors and, and we've seen price growth in places like Geelong and, and Ballarat, yep. not terribly far from Melbourne, a much more yep. affordable price point that's really being lifted up by that ripple effect. As as you say, when, when investors and homeowners are realizing that they can they can shift, you know, an hour or an hour and a half in, in another direction and, and be saving, you know, a hundred thousand dollars plus. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, listen. Um, uh, I've got very, very happy clients um, in Geelong today, um, and the thing is, you need to identify these and before they go in the press. <laughs> yes. And, and and then once I mean, Geelong is is a case in point. Um, uh, you know, they they're building things that they're building just south of Geelong. They're building a, a brand new town center for Armstrong Creek, for instance, which is 
Armstrong, the, the, that town center is going to be bigger than the, the, the CBD of Geelong. Wow. So it's to show you that there'll be 50,000, 60,000 people moving in there. So, uh, but, and prices in the last year have gone up just on the land. Um, they've gone up by 40,000, 50,000. So, you, you know, the, the people we put in Geelong last year, they are all happy bunnies and they can't wait to get to the next property after that. Yeah, awesome. So, so it's a question of getting to these areas, um, and, and, but it's, it's a very different animal than what it was in the past where you could just, um, you know, they were talking about Southeast Queensland and whatever you did, you would make money. It's not the case now. Mm. Um, you, you need to find these pockets. Um, get in there, put your clients in there, and then um, as soon as you see the prices starting to rocket, at some point you just say, okay, listen, I think um, that's it, let's go somewhere else. Yep. Um, and you need that, you need to, and, and you know, we've got researchers in, in Victoria, in New South Wales, in Queensland, and they're constantly on the lookout for, for these type of areas. Can you run us through the process of, of how you assist investors if they're, if they're coming through and, and wanting to work with you in multifocus, Philippe? Yeah, sure. I mean, a typical client would um, uh, would call us and say, I want to invest in property. Ten of them? Sorry? Ten of them, perhaps? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the, yeah, the, it's, um, we get a constant, um, a constant stream of of referrals from existing clients too but um, yeah they, they come along they say oh we want we want to invest in property um, don't know where to start um, yeah I want 10 properties but not sure how to do go on about it so the first thing we do is we say okay we need to understand your financial situation because we can talk about property uh, forever uh, but it means nothing if it's not in the context of, of who you are what you can afford etc etc yeah. there's no point talking about 10 properties as you mentioned if the person can only afford one so by looking at the financial situation of a client we can actually um, assess what the boundaries of the discussions are and, and saying you know uh, what are we talking about here and also looking at their attitude to risk um, what they want to achieve etc etc so in the conversation all these things come out and then we part with a lot of education as well so they understand how it works what they should be doing, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Once that is done, then we put the plan, the plan in place, which is usually starting with extracting equity from an existing property or using their savings um, uh, to invest into a property, getting the finance sorted out for the new property, and obviously sourcing the properties for them. Um, we've got on our books many properties, but um, some properties are better than others. Um, yeah. Uh, for in the context of a person's situation. Uh, I'll give you an example. I've got a lady who is, is a top marketing lady in a massive company and she's on you know, way over $300,000 in salary, but she's never invested before. Right. So very easy, and she's got plenty of savings. So very easy to say, oh, here's a $600,000 or $650,000 property that would really return some good good um, good yield and good capital growth um, but you know talking to the lady uh, she's because it's a first property she's a bit hesitant so a property around 450,000 is a lot more palatable for her right. 
So we said, that, listen, no problem at all. Let's do the first property at 450,000. So you don't feel that you've got a big chunk to chew. Like uh, uh, the numbers can be scary sometimes. So 450, she felt a lot more relaxed. And uh, so we sourced the property around that price for her. And um, and she's she's quite happy. She's looking forward. She's now in the middle of uh, building the house. And um, she's already talking about the next one. And then people get more comfortable with the concept of investing in property. And then they, they might look at bigger properties in the future. Awesome. Now, if, if, if people have got some, some questions or wanting to get in touch with you, Philippe, how, what's the best way to do that? Um, sure. Uh, contact us uh, on our website. It's uh, www.multifocus.com.au. Or, or just call us on our on, on the website. You'll you'll have our phone number. Just um, just uh, call the number and, and just ask for me. Awesome. Well, I very much appreciate your time, Philippe. It's been a, a great interview. If if you wouldn't mind, I'd, I'd love if you can leave us with with one one final word, and and that's if there's one piece of advice you can share with property investors. What what would that be? Um, the biggest piece of advice I, I, I would tell everyone is get into that planning phase first. I see so many people come to us saying, I've got two properties, not sure where to go. I've got, you know, I just bought them, didn't realize what I was doing, uh, and now I'm stuck, what, what do I do? It's, it's much better to get your education first, get your understanding of how it works, get the planning done, um, so you know and you've got a sense of direction. Awesome, I think that's great advice, Philippe, and uh, really enjoyed the interview. Thanks very much for joining us. My pleasure. Cheers.